show is dedicated to Joseph Fuller, an avid listener who engaged with us in thoughtful conversation and a quintessential lover of all things science fiction. Joseph, you'll be missed. If you like what we're serving here at the Sci-Fi Diner, feel free to leave us a tip at patreon.com backslash sci-fi, spelled the right way, and by Audible. Get a free audiobook when you sign up today. Audibletrial.com backslash sci-fi diner. Engage. Science fiction is an existential metaphor. It allows us to tell stories about the human condition. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, where we serve up interviews, news, and our view on the world of science fiction. Come, grab a chair, and enjoy the conversations. I'd say we've got an unexpected guest. Rose, we're going, we don't need Rose. I've got a bad feeling about it. What? Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. Hi, I'm Ron Trevor-Ruffin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm M. Ciro Garcia. Uh, that was the Miles Puppet. Yeah, Miles Puppet. And uh, Miles, you will be hearing from tonight a short voice clip, but his uh, real-life job has had some unique demands on him. He's putting in a crap load of overtime, so he's not able to be with us tonight, and we will miss him because... He would absolutely love to be talking about Star Trek tonight. He would. This is his wheelhouse. It is. This Good way of putting it. Not mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll and, get uh, all of that, but um, he, he he would probably find uh, something a little bit more redemptive about the movie we'll be talking about than maybe we will. But hopefully, Russ has something. Yeah, well, redemptive. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not holding out. Uh, our Facebook listeners who commented though. Do have some positive things to pull out of it, so we will be banking People on you guys cringe. for uh, helping us find something redemptive in Star Trek Five. So we're talking about tonight, for the most part, Star Trek Five: The Final Frontier. Uh, and along with that, we are bringing Russ on to talk uh, and interview Russ a little bit. We met Russ at Farpoint and Shore Leave, and uh, and uh, so he's on to talk, and we're on to interview him just a little bit. And talk about his work, and then he'll be helping us talk about Star Trek The Final Frontier as well. So it's, I'm excited about that. It should be a good conversation, and hopefully we aren't just bashing Star Trek the whole time, because that wouldn't make very fun either. So, Or maybe it would. I don't know. Well, well I'm not, look, I'm not going to bash it. It just it was not my cup of tea, and I, uh, I, I, could, I could not get through it. Yeah, I could not get through it. Yeah. I'm really sorry, well, but we'll get to that in a moment. But my understanding, Em, in your sci-fi world, there's something about Star Trek that you have been loving. I well, I always enjoy Star Trek because I always enjoy the endeavors of of pursuing something differently, or finding something new, or challenging yourself to think differently or be different. And I'm in this. I'm actually rewatching um, Discovery. And just really enjoying it completely, but and also finding some issues because there's <laughs> some time inaccuracies that I need some help identify, you know, kind of sorting out. But um, there's, there's, it, I, ch I can't, I just can't with that one. Well, so I'm gonna tell all of you what I told Scott. I tried really hard. And like maybe, maybe around the 18, 19 minute mark, I just could not anymore. He said, okay, that's enough. 
yeah. it just yeah. wasn't my cup of tea. Yeah. Well, what else is going on in your sci-fi world beyond Star Trek here? Um, so I'm rewatching Discovery. I'm super, super jazzed at the announcement this past weekend at um, Star Trek Las Vegas with the return of Jean-Luc Pickard. Um, <laughs> I had to explain that reference to somebody this week and realized that they were not born when TNG was out. So, okay. Yeah, that's uh, becoming more of an issue as I get older. You know, stuff I, I know. watched, I said, oh, yeah, you were not around when this came out. Right. I realize I'm watching Batman Begins and realizing, oh wow, that movie's almost 20 years old. I know. Oh <laughs> God, I know. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> Anyways, it's, it's crazy. So I'm rewatching that, and then uh, Infinity War came out last Tuesday on digital, and I have binge watched the crap out of that, and watched the special features, which made me laugh. There's a really great special feature called a um, the director's roundtable. Where the directors, the Russo brothers, Joss Whedon, John Favreau, the fellow who just did um, Black Panther, James Gunn, and then the fellow who did the Ant-Mans, the Ants-Man, um, all sat around a table and were talking about the world of, of Marvel in the, the movie sense. And then uh, Taika, who, I can't remember his last name. He couldn't make it, so they had a digital presence. They had this little iPad just kind of roll up with his hat and jacket on, which really made it kind of adorable. And it was a neat. It was neat to hear them having a conversation um, about the just the not necessarily the genesis of this Marvel universe, but just how even though as individual writers and directors, how just interestingly and perfectly things have rolled one into the other like um at the end of guardians of the galaxy 2 when what's her face the machine girl um takes off to go after thanos the russo brothers like oh my god that's great because that fits in perfectly with what we're gonna do and then the same with the young man who um wrote and directed uh a black panther the way that finished up with bucky they were like oh my god that's amazing because it all worked out. It's not like they have a grand master plan. It seems that they have like ideas and then somebody writes their script and then sends it off to the next guy and they just go from there. And it's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, and speaking of Ant-Man, Ant-Man and Wasp, I'm, I might need to see it again. I didn't, it was cute. Have you seen it? I have. And, uh, my son would say that it's one of his favorite movies. Is it? That's sweet. He loves. He loves. Um, he, lo- he loves. He loved the first Ant Man movie. And he loved this one. He says it's one of his favorite Marvel characters. So, okay. Well, that's valid. That's cool. Yeah. Like Ragnarok is my current meter stick for funny and smart and creative and silly. So it it was it was cute. I mean, I don't know. There were there are definitely some inaccuracies timeline wise that I need to watch it again and fix, but, or figure out like where all that stuff's coming from. Um, and then, um, that's pretty much it. I've been super busy with work and trying not to, um, I had food poisoning last week, which was not fun. Um, but I did lose like six pounds, (laughs) which is not how to do it. (laughs) But a Um, nice side effect. Yeah. And then the other thing that's been on in my sci-fi world, 
I'm a little bit obsessed with reading about James Gunn and oh, that whole what debacle. Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay. He's sinned. He's atoned for his sins. And then he atoned again for his sins. And then some cyber bully comes out and like, by the way, he did this crap. And Disney was like, Oh, that's it. You're out. Bye. This, they like, I feel like they jumped the gun, not to make a joke. Um, I feel like they, <laughs> like, in this case, literally, literally, mm. it, they just, I don't know. They judged him in the, in the court of public opinion before any facts were found, kind of like with Chris Hardwick, public opinion just completely eviscerated him. And then when AMC like discovered that the the article that was written about him that was inferred that he was the bad boyfriend, they found no real evidence about that. Like, I feel like it's this is getting when people do horrible things, they should definitely pay the price. But if they've done horrible things and they've acknowledged it on their own and said, you know, I'm trying to be better. And it was years and years and years ago. I don't know. What do you think? I think that we, you know, I think we as human beings, we, we, we screw up. We make mistakes, right? And um, I think it's great when people, you know, are working to be better and, and acknowledged it and have tried to atone for it the best they can. And, uh, and if they've done that, why continue to punish them? I mean, what's the point? So I'm a little bit more of a... Uh, uh, people make mistakes. Let's uh, forgive them and move on. So, but, mm-hmm. but that's my thought. My thought. Okay. Well, yeah. what's going on in your sci-fi world? Well, so we had shore leave. Of course, we have not talked since shore leave. You realize? Oh gosh, right. So, uh, but we did put out that the uh, we did talk about shore leave extensively in our panel that we shared with you guys. And so I don't feel like we need to talk a ton about it, but it was an amazing experience. We had some amazing interviews that we will be sharing with you eventually. And in fact, we had a chance to chat with Russ there and talk about doing this interview that we're doing as well. And we met very Mary cool. Fan and some of the other people we've had on this. So very cool. And I was going to talk about Ant-Man and Wasp, but you talked about it. My son, again, as I said, absolutely loved this movie. Um the ending I thought was interesting. The uh, post-credit scene, not the final post-credit scenes, but the one where he's kind of, you know, I won't spoil it. But it was a oh, it's been like three weeks. We I can know, spoil. We can it. spoil it. So the one where like Scott's like in the uh, micro universe and like um, yeah, and like like the people are like ashes you know right and which was interesting. So that meant that it was happening right around Infinity War, or at least that part of it. Yes. And but we don't get anything in the movie itself that indicates it's happening around the same time, just that little section, which could have been weeks or months right. after the main movie. So there's that. Uh, I watched Indiana and the Temple of Doom for the first time ever. So what I never watched. I watched a lot of the other Indiana movies, and I had, I had this big cock in my head. I was telling him earlier I got hit by a piece of spouting that totally knocked me for a loop. Um, Wait, we're the same age. How have you not seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? I've seen all the others. For some reason, this but, one escaped my. It's this. I know. I, I know. Wow. I know. I watched How, all of these years. I know. So, but I did watch it, and I did watch another one that you'll be happy with. This one, probably a little bit more forgivable because it's like a cult classic. But Buckaroo Banzai. The uh, 1980 version of it with Peter Weller and John Lithgow and Jeff Goldblum. And I was like, 
well, you know, okay, it's definitely campy. But I got about halfway through it before I had to come up and start prepping for the podcast. So I've been enjoying that. Um, also watching a movie called Tao, which is... Um, oh, that's on Netflix. Yeah. Also, yeah, it's, it's on Netflix. And it's um, about a girl that gets kidnapped and uh, is trapped in this house and this AI... And this guy yes. is like sadistic, but he she's trying to get out. And it's just one of those types of things. And I've been enjoying that. And um, and then in reading, I just finished uh, Caliban's War, which is the second novel in the, the Wyeth and Wake series. Uh, that's Expanse series. Um, okay. And uh, really enjoyed this book. The characters are incredible. Um, and so it was really hard. I made a shift from that and reading Thrawn Alliances by Timothy Zahn. Mm-hmm. And I'm enjoying it, but I'm st- like I'm still reeling from the last book. So it's one of those things. But. Cool. So that's predominantly my sci-fi world. So, okay. Yeah. Oh, let me ask you something. Let's yeah, sure. go to Ant Man and and um, the Wasp. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So the final final cut, the little final drop scene at the end was just dumb. We didn't need that. What the drummer? But the good, <laughs> the one where Scott goes into the multiverse. So. The only other character that we've heard talk about these other universes is um is Doctor Strange. Yes. And I have this feeling that because he can transcendentally like remove himself from his body, I feel like that in Infinity Wars before he like floats away because he's seen the future and he's seen the only way that they win that he like he managed to get himself into the plane so he's not completely gone. And I feel like he's going to run into um, like it's, it's somehow uh, they'll connect in like the multi mini verse, wherever they are. I like that. I like that idea a lot. And I'm going to, I'm just going to put it out there. We're going to have to wait two years. To well, no, I think, that. I think it's next year. Is it? Yeah, it's next year. So uh, Captain Marvel comes out like in March. And Infinity War comes out the end of April next year, or oh, the nice. second, the second one. So, oh, that's right. Yeah. So about. Oh, I need year. to book a movie theater for that for my office. Uh, there you um. go. <laughs> <laughs> Get right on that. Uh, well, I do want to play a little bit. Uh, Miles, as I said, did, did uh, send a audio clip in, so you're going to hear a little bit about what's going on in his sci-fi world, and then we can talk about it. And then we're going to bring Russ on and start chatting with Russ a little bit. Cool. Hi, am Hi, Scott, and hello to all our awesome listeners. Sorry I couldn't be with you. My employer is pushing mandatory overtime, so my evenings aren't going to be so free this month. So I thought I'd at least uh, send this little message with what's going on in my sci-fi world. I recently finished watching the series finale of 12 Monkeys. I'm glad the show was able to wrap things up and end well. In one of the episodes, our heroes travel to France in World War II, and we're treated by a cover song by the character Jennifer Goines, uh, as she does her best rendition of Your Hand by Pink to Hitler and a group of Nazis while the rest of our heroes complete the mission. I'll post a link on our Facebook page. I encourage you to check it out. At the very least, it's entertaining. I also watched the whole season of Black Lightning, which is now dropped on Netflix. I enjoyed that as well. Currently, I started watching Killjoys on the Sci-Fi Network. In movies, I recently watched uh, Rampage starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Now, you'll only watch this movie for its entertainment value of watching giant gorillas, wolves, and alligators battle each other and wreck Chicago. 
I was excited to hear that Patrick Stewart has agreed to reprise his role of Jean-Luc Picard and he yet to be announced Star Trek project on, on CBS All Access. More Star Trek on TV is a great thing. I'm really hoping that maybe uh, Patrick Stewart and uh, the crew of the Enterprise D um, get a chance to, um, um, well, have a send-off like the original series crew did. I'm currently reading a time travel novel by Jill Cooper, Time Warp, a time travel thriller in the rerun conspiracy book six. Had a fantastic time at Shore Leave, uh, hanging out with Scott and Em, and uh, seeing uh, many of other good friends there as well. Looking forward when I can record a show with Scott and Em. So until next time, good night and good luck. Oh, that was nice, Miles. That was really sweet. I especially love that you said hi to me first. Oh, whoa. <laughs> That's really sweet. It does stink that like he's got to do the mandatory overtime. Yeah. However, this is good, like, A, cash-wise. And B, it'll show his employer that he's amazing and he'll get some bigger, better day shifts. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, Miles, is it, having solid employment is important. And that, you know, that's been, uh, so this is, this is really a good thing for Miles. It's just cutting into, it is. It into, is. into his podcast time. And I agree. We did, I didn't mention this, but in my sci-fi world, I was stoked when we got the news that, that Sir Patrick is going to be reprising. I know. Uh, so, it, you know, just, Wonderful. yeah, just absolutely amazing and totally stoked about that as well. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and bring in uh, Russ into our conversation. Well, welcome back to the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. We have joining us tonight for our discussion of Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, Russ Colchimiro. And he's joining us. He's an author that has written numerous books. And we had a chance to actually meet him at, I think, Shore Leave a year ago I met you. And then we kind of touched base again at Shore Leave again this year. And uh, and uh, I know that Mary Fan talked about you when, when, when she was on the podcast here. So we're excited to have you joining us tonight to talk a little bit about what's going on in your writing world and what you're excited about in your writing world and obviously to talk about Star Trek. Absolutely. Uh, well, thanks, Scott, for having me. Um, good to, uh, to get into it. Uh, so, yeah, I've been kind of a busy guy uh, lately on the writing side. Um, so was, I'm a member of Crazy 8 Press, as you may know. Uh, we recently put out an anthology at Shore Leave called They Keep Killing Glenn, where we killed our writing partner, Glenn Hellman, 23 different ways, uh, including my story, which we, I killed him uh, by Haley's Comet. Um, <laughs> and the story involved um, my hard-boiled detective character, Angela Hardwick, who has now appeared in four books that I've written, a combination of novels and anthologies. And I'm 95% done with her first solo uh, novel, which I'm hoping to have out next year. Um, well, let me, can I uh, ask, can I ask you about that a little bit? So, so you obviously have this this obsession with this character, right? Angela Hartwick, she appears in numerous short stories. She has appeared, as you said, in this, um, they keep killing Glenn and then in murder mayhem. And now you're writing your first full private eye novel. What gives, what, what keeps drawing you back to this character? 
Uh, well, I've always loved the detective genre ever since I was a kid. And uh, about, I don't know, about four years ago, five years ago, I was writing the second book. I have um, a sci-fi backpacking comedy series. Uh, it's Finders Keepers, Genius to Milo, and Astropalooza. In the writing of that series, she just kind of emerged. In the second book, uh, Genius to Milo, she just shows up real quick. But when she did, I said, this is someone I want to spend a lot of time with. So in the third book in the series, she is a prominent secondary character. And the more I was writing her, I just decided I want to build an entire franchise around this character. So I've written a couple of short stories with her to kind of get a better feel for her in the lead. And now that I've got this first novel almost done, my plan is to write at least another five to eight books with her and maybe more. Who knows? That's, that's my hope. Um, I've really, as uh, on the reading side, I've really been devouring uh, detective novels over the last year. You know, some of the classics, you know, I just read my first um, uh, Robert Parker book in, this, in, this, in the Spencer series. Raymond Chandler, Walter Mosley, um, uh, who else? I'm looking on my shelf right now. Harlan <laughs> Coben, Elmore Leonard, and on and on. I've probably read, just read about 15 or 20 detective novels just in the last year or so, just sort of absorbing, and um, I'm just addicted to it. I love the genre. I love the feel of it. And uh, now that I've kind of gotten my feet wet with uh, this first book, I just I just have a good feeling about it, and I'm excited to sort of to see where else, uh, see what kind of trouble uh, Angela can get into. So you mentioned that kind of you're writing this backpacking story, and that there's this idea of bringing comedy into your science fiction, and that's been kind of a trope for you. That I don't know if trope's the right word, but it's been sort of the genre that you kind of have wandered into. Why why do you feel that the world needs comedic science fiction? <laughs> Well, the first book, um, Finders Keepers in the series, it's based on a series of backpacking trips that I actually took myself to Europe and New Zealand. This is going back 20-something years ago. And they were, you know, it's easy to say I had a life-changing experience, but in my case, it happens to be accurate. Um, the people that I had met and the things that I encountered really um, altered my worldview in an extraordinary way um, forever. And, um, and a, a, at the same time, I had been tinkering around with this sort of goofy sci-fi concept. And, um, and it was sort of like, you know, Reese's peanut butter. You know, I merged the chocolate and the peanut butter and got a peanut butter cup. And it just, it just kind of fit. And the storyline kind of very organically took, you know, took off from there. You know, it starts off with these two, you know, early 20 knuckleheads running around Europe having an adventure, and their big worry is, can I make my train to Amsterdam? Can I get the hot girl? Um, I'm hungover again. Mean <laughs> and as they're running around, but meanwhile, they're at the, uh, the fate of the universe hang, uh, is hanging in the balance, and they're at the center of it, only they don't know it. But as the reader, you do. So you're in on the joke, and they're not. And then after I wrote the first book, I thought that was going to be it. But then about two years later, I had that aha moment where I said, oh, I know the second book. And I was writing it, 
And then about halfway through the second book, I said, wait a second, I can now see the arc of every character and how they will end up by the end of the third book. And then all of a sudden I could really see this expansive overarching story that was taking place. And it was sort of wild. And for me, it was adventurous and funny and a mix of sort of what I like to call cosmic lunacy and asking the big questions you know, what, what does it all mean? Why are we here? What keeps the fabric of the universe together and that kind of thing? Meanwhile, you got these two guys who are just trying to get through life. And, you know, how do I, how do I pay my rent? <laughs> you know, should I propose to my girlfriend? And both of these things seem equally important. That's awesome. So, um, so with comedy, why, why then science fiction as a part of that? What, what inspires you to write uh, science fiction for you? You know, it kind of happened organically. The, the why I like science fiction is that you are limited solely by your imagination. Um, you can come up with any crazy idea that you want. As long as you are consistent within the rules that you establish, readers will, are willing, they'll, they'll buy what you're selling. I'm like that too. I, I can read any kind of book or watch or almost any kind of book or watch any kind of show or movie. You tell me what the world is. Okay. I'll buy it. As long as, as long as you don't break your own rules, I'm going along for the ride. And with science fiction, um, you know, some sci-fi authors write more hardcore sci-fi, you know, hard sci-fi aliens, robots. That's not really me. I do more, um, light sci-fi. It's a little more like science fantasy. Is probably more accurate. Um, it's just a style that I enjoy. But as I am shifting with Angela Hardwick, who's more of this private eye, I've grounded, I try to ground her, um, the sci-fi tropes, uh, the environment a little bit more. So it feels a lot like the world that you and I know and live in, but she's sort of an intergalactic sci- uh, private eye. And the merging of the two seem to really be coming together for me. Good, good. Em, do you want to ask about the Crazy Eight question? Um, well, actually, well, it was when you were talking about um, writing comedic and writing science fiction, it made me think of Robert Asprin. Did you ever okay. read his his myth books and his fools books? Like it was. Uh, he, I have it. He he I mean he was writing back in the early in the late seventies, early eighties, and I remember just tearing into this. I liked I always enjoyed science fiction and fantasy, but having that that bit of a comedic ad was a it was one of the was something kind of special. So I'm excited to hear that about your stories that you bring that it's not just I'm gonna create this world, but I'm gonna make it as as what's the word? Uh, still make it like attachable and attainable with your reader, because if there's ever anything that brings us all down to a common denominator, it's comedy. So I'm, I'm really intrigued by that. And like, you know, it, it, it makes it kind of fun. Um, so with that, like, how did you, did, have you always written like this? And the crazy eight guys were like, Oh my God, we need you to be our crazy eighth. Or like, where did, how did how did the relationship with Crazy Eights um, come about? Sure. Um, so I had been out on book tour. This is going back several years ago um, with my first book, Finders Keepers, and I was at PhilCon, 
which um, is now in, it moved from Philadelphia out to uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And I had a table and I had my book out on the table and some guy came over and he said, he picked it up and he goes, Oh, what's this? I go, Oh, you know, it's, it's my book, Finders Keepers. It's a sci-fi comedy, you know, kind of like Bill and Ted. If you like Bill and Ted, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Harold and Kumar, that kind of thing, it's, you're right in that wheelhouse. I said, well, you know, no one's really writing that kind of thing anymore. And he said, well, actually, I am. I said, oh, really? That's interesting. I said, he said where are you from? I said, oh, I'm from New York. He goes, me too. I said, oh, I'm living, I live in Queens. He goes, me too. I said, yeah, I got a couple of young kids. He says, me too. I'm like, okay, there's something going on here. Well, it turned out that it was Aaron, Rose, Aaron Rosenberg, who was a member of Crazy Eight Press, and he has his whole Duck Bob series, which is comedic sci-fi. And from there, we became friends. And we started to, um, so the guys have lunch every Wednesday at the Malibu Diner, which is on 23rd Street in Manhattan. It's a, it's a tradition that goes back almost 25 years at this point, um, because the tour books offices was over there. And the writers and editors um, on Wednesdays would come down to lunch. And then afterwards, they would go across the street and go to the comic book shop. And that tradition kind of held. So we said, why don't you come over? To then have lunch with us because I worked in Manhattan too, and I did, and I started to meet those guys. And that is so after, quintessentially New York, by the way. That's delicious. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And after about I don't know three six months, something like that, we were actually walking. Aaron and I were walking back from lunch, and they said, "Listen, I've got a second book, not in the sci-fi, not in the comedy series. I had this uh, space opera, Crossline." I said, I'm looking for a home for it. Are you guys maybe interested in, in publishing it? And he and Aaron said, well, your timing is actually perfect because we've been talking about opening up our doors and bringing on another author into our collective because even though it's crazy eight, at the time they only had six authors. So we said, let me talk to the guys and see what they think. So he did. And then they formally invited me to become an official member of Crazy Eight Press. And I've been with them ever since. That's nice. Like five, maybe five, six years at this point. That is awesome. That's, That's awesome. amazing. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah it's, it's been, it's been real. It's been real good. It's been real good. Well, I really, enjoyed, I really enjoyed the story, as you said, just about how that happened. And there's, yeah. I'm just picturing in my head, a whole bunch of guys sitting around all talking and like, did you get the pastrami? Did you get the roast beef? I got the pastrami. Is that my pickle? Just kind of going back and <laughs> It's, I, I want to yeah, film this. It's just something like, it's, it's something just, I, wa I want to make like a small short film about this. Well, if you ever, um, if you, if you ever get a chance to read Killing Glenn, they keep Killing Glenn. And my story is, you know, partially set at the Malibu diner, one of the lunches that we do. Oh, nice. that's awesome. That is awesome. So my understanding is that you have another anthology with Crazy Press that's coming out. Can you tell us a little bit about Crimson Keep? Sure. So Tales of the Crimson Keep came out actually about, uh, I'm losing track, maybe four or five years ago. And we got off to a little bit of a false start, and I can't particularly remember why. And I was really... Um, I wanted us to do it right again. And since then, we've brought on a few other writers, including Mary Fan, who you obviously know. Uh, she joined us about a year ago, and Paul Kupperberg. And we said, you know what? Let's do another version, but let's bring in Mary and have a few more stories in it. They're all 
in the fantasy genre. Think of it sort of a little bit more of a Harry Potter for adults, where all the stories are set in the Crimson Keep, which essentially is this giant castle. But the castle itself is sort of al- it's mystical and magical and sort of alive. It actually changes shape when it needs to, and it ebbs and flows. And it's sort of run by the master, who is sort of the, the wizard. And he has charges, so he's training junior wizards to become full-blown wizards. And there's demons and goblins and other things that go bump in the night. And each of the stories takes place within that world. And each one of us has written a standalone story. In addition, however, there are two stories which are round robins. The way it started was back at Shore Leave, and let's just call it six or seven years ago, it started off, and I may be botching the story a little bit. This is before I joined. Um, one of the guys, I think it was Kevin Dilmore, who had um, shouted out uh, sort of the first uh, line of a story, and the guys were charged with live at shore leave. And I think, you know that, uh, Scott, that little piece along the, when you're downstairs, those two brick walls, and there's like a little space. The tiny sliver, and, yeah. And the tiny right, you sit there, and each of the guys had one hour. You write. You, you get your hour, you start the story, then you hand it off to the next guy. So the next, the next writer has to read it and say, okay, and then take the story from there, doing whatever they want. And the goal was to sort of box the next guy into a corner so it would be impossible to get out, but yet the story still had to actually act cohesively. So that's kind of what was the impetus for the original book, so it's around Robin. What we did, so that original story will, appears in the anthology, what also appears is we did a second round robin. This is with Mary as well, where each one of us, but we did it over email. Each one of us did about a thousand words and say, here's my thousand words, passed it on to the next guy, the next writer, did a thousand words. And we just kind of had to, when it was your turn, you sort of had to read everything that came before it, add your thousand words or so and pass it off to the next writer. And, and then it's, it's, it's the next person's problem. <laughs> they got, they got to figure it out. Um, I actually haven't read the whole thing. I just didn't, I read up to where I had read my piece and I handed it off to the next writer. So I'm actually curious to see how the story ends myself. Um, so that will be coming out actually, I think in a couple of weeks. Um, and this one is called the renovated edition. It's got a new cover, um, a new intro. And like I said, uh, and a couple of new stories. So if you like fantasy um, it's, you know, it's for adults. I mean, it's, PG, PG-13, so nothing, um, you know, anyone can read it. But um, if you like wizards and goblins and spells and demons, then this is definitely for you. Awesome. Yeah, I remember when they were doing the uh, the writing into uh, each other into a corner. Yeah, so, yep, so remember that happening. that's what you're getting. And it should be, yeah, I think two, three weeks, I think it'll be out. Awesome. Nice. Yep, Tales of the Crimson Keep. Awesome. Go ahead. Well, before we get into Star Trek V, the possibly worst Star Trek movie ever in the whole history of all movies. Um, <coughs> sorry. <laughs> that was stuck in my throat. Um, Apparently. I understand that you recently got a chance to see um, Star Trek Wrath of Khan with William Shatner. And that yes. you and Mary Fan, like, like, like you went with Mary Fan, who did... Uh, uh, Star Trek four with us. You saw this with yeah. Shatner. So, so what happened is that, so William Shatner went on tour 
And I don't know if it was nationwide. At minimum, it was on the East Coast. I know he did it in, it was either D.C. and Baltimore. He came to New Jersey. May, may have been other spots. And what we did was, uh, so where Mary and I saw it was at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center. And if you've never been there, it was my first time. It's beautiful. It's like their version of Carnegie Hall. It's a beautiful hall. And we saw Wrath of Khan on the big screen. And now I saw Wrath of Khan on the big screen when it came out. What was it, like 82 or something like that? Mm-hmm. Which is great movie. I've seen it many, many times since then. But it's the first time I've seen it on the big screen in 35 years. Um, it was still incredible. It really held up. And then once the movie was over, Shatner came out on stage and there was an MC who interviewed him for like an hour where Shatner was just telling stories about Star Trek, about his career, all the things that he'd done. Um, it was really, uh, I got to tell you, Shatner, I think is what, 88 now, 87, 88, 89. And mm-hmm. I'm telling you, he still got energy and entertaining. Um, it was really worth the price of admission. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I know that we heard a good report about Shatner at Shore Leave this year, of course. We were all at Shore Leave. And um yep. and the and and when we talked to like his handler and these is that it, Shatner was has in a really good mood and it was like really good it seemed to be a really good con for him. So uh, I've been hearing a lot of positive things about Shatner. And uh, not everything that you hear about Shatner is always positive, but but this uh, but he seems to but it seems to be it seems good. So I'm glad you had a good experience uh, at that, and oh, that had great. to be a, had to be a memorable that experience. Is. When I'm when I'm 88 or 89, if I ha- if I have that kind of energy, I will consider myself blessed. All right. Well, uh, with that, why don't we go ahead and move into Star Trek Five: The Final Frontier. And I'm going to start off with just a short summary for people that may not have watched it recently, and then we'll go into some stats. And then we'll just talk about our impressions of having watched this again and uh, what we liked, disliked, what held up, what didn't hold up, etc. So, uh, so just to recap for those of you that haven't watched in a while. Um, this story is when this there's a new the Christian starship, the Enterprise, of course, uh, and uh, the shakedown cruise goes poorly and Captain Kirk and crew put her into space dock for repairs. But an urgent mission interrupts their earthbound shore leave. A renegade Vulcan named Cybok has taken three ambassadors hostage on number three, the planet of galactic peace. This event also attracts the attention of the Klingon captain who wants to make a name for himself and sets out to pursue the Enterprise, primarily Kirk. Cybok's uh, ragtag army captures the Enterprise and takes her on a journey to the center of the galaxy in search of the supreme being. So that's just a, a, a the story in a nutshell. Um, some other stats about this. This movie came out in 89, June 9th, 1989 to be exact, with a budget 
of $27 million, uh, more like 28 if you round up. And it made in the U.S. alone $52 million, and worldwide made $70 million, so it definitely made its money back. Um, and those are really the stats of it. But despite the fact that it made money back, my understanding is that we didn't really love rewatching this movie. You know, it was, it was interesting, actually, because Shatner was talking about Star Trek V when Mary and I saw him, because it came up. And, you know, one of the things that uh, was going on at the time is that there was a writer's strike. So that really hurt what he could do. And also he was talking about how his budget got slashed. And there was a lot of things he wanted to do, a lot of the special effects that he wanted to have in the movie he wasn't able to get, and they had to do things kind of on the fly. The, and apparently the producer, and this is if I'm recalling the story correctly, kind of really wasn't on board with the direction of the film, and they were fighting a lot. So from this, And I, I have to say, I found myself being quite um, empathetic towards Shatner. It sounded like you know, he, he really went in with the best of intentions. He wanted to make a great movie. And, um, he had a lot of, it was like, he was swimming against the tide. You know, he had a lot of elements really that, um, were not going in his favor and he kind of had to do the best he could with what he had. Yeah. And it was really kind of sad because this was kind of Shatner's really big film premiere. Uh, he had directed some episodes of TJ Hooker prior to this, but, um, yep. but, but this is really, this was really his movie and it just didn't, it, you know, for many Trek fans, this is considered a one of one of the uh, worst Star Trek films that has been made, um, and uh, and I think that this is uh, again, as you're saying, you have some empathy towards Shatner because of the situation he was in. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's funny. I I don't know what you guys think. I'd be curious, but there's actually a germ of a great idea in this story. Right, in this movie, right? I mean, if you think about it, if essentially it's the search for God, right. but you've also got the Klingons who kind of get wind of where they're going. So if you think about it conceptually, what if the Enterprise and Kirk, you know, maybe he's not really leading it, but he, Kirk and the Enterprise and the Klingons in a race to find a planet where God lives. Now that is a cool idea. I'm all over that. If you tell me that's what the story's about, I'm all in. That's fascinating because it brings in not only the, obviously, the spiritual, philosophical side of it, but then you've got the, you know, it's beat the clock, right? It's a, it's a, it's a race to the finish line. Who's going to go get, you know, in, in essence, the God that they're searching for is like the MacGuffin, right? That's the thing that the two sides are chasing. Who's going to get there first? And they have to duke it out. So it allows you conceptually to have the Klingon still, that renegade Klingon versus the Enterprise element of it. And ultimately, we're going to go find God. Now, wow. Now, that's a story. I mean, I can really get on board with that. Unfortunately for me, the execution wasn't there. But the concept was. Yeah, so you felt like the uh, the Klingon, you know, trying to make a name for himself and a little bit of maybe some petty vengeance wasn't str- a strong enough story. Well, you know, in theory, I could buy it, right? You know, at that point, 
Um, you know, there's still, he doesn't speak for the Klingon empire, but this one guy, I, I, I forgot the Klingon's name. Um, you know, he wants to make a name. He, he intercepts this message. He wants to make a name for self, for himself. He wants to, to battle Kirk. There's no, I think he says at one point to defeat, there's no greater honor than to defeat Kirk in battle or something to that effect. And you can sort of understand that because at this point in the Star Trek mythology, Kirk is a legend. I mean, everyone knows Kirk. Right. So he thinks if I go, if I go after him and I beat him, you know, I'll live on forever. And even if maybe, even if he falls a little bit short, you know, maybe from the Klingon point of view, what a way to go out, right? Maybe today is a good day to die. Right. If I got to die at the hands of Kirk, well, okay. You know, I got beat by the best. Fair right. enough. Right. So on paper, on paper, I, I can really buy that kind of tension. The execution sort of, you know, the, the character himself was ill-defined. He was just sort of a generic character. There was, we got no sense of who, he, we didn't know anything about him. Yeah, no backstory. Who he was, no backstory whatsoever. Um, so it wasn't really that tension that you're looking for. The conflict before the two sides isn't there. You know, take the classic one, if you look at Wrath of Khan, right? Kirk versus Khan. That's very personal, very intense. Oh, yeah. Even Star Trek Three, which I would argue is to some degree a little underappreciated. You know, even uh, it was Christopher Lloyd as the Klingon captain. I mean, he, he and Kirk, personal, they went at it, and it was mano y mano, and you bought that. But in this one, he was just kind of there, and Kirk barely even knew that he existed. There was no... There was, there was no tension. There was no duel, duel in the sense of a battle of wits, a battle of wills, a battle of power. You didn't feel that, really. It wasn't it special. Wasn't, it, wasn't a, it was not. You're right. It was not there's, special at all. There's these moments that, they, that Star Trek in the TV show and in the movies, and it started to wane away um, that you, you had a very specific bad guy but not just for the sake of being a pain in the ass bad guy. Oh, we're gonna have to bleep that out. Um, <laughs> but like a true something viscerally, like I'm I'm going to do this, and here is my reason, and not just because I'm a giant nutball. It just yeah. it it was missing that spark. He was just he was like a kiddie pool. He was not that deep. So yes. even, that's exactly right. Yes. Even I, I, I agree with that. And I, and I know they ran out of money, or they didn't run out. Of, they kept his kept getting his budget trimmed, and they had to cut out cool things like the big fight with the rock monster, and they kind of used a lot of filler. It just it felt very nineteen eighty nine, and it just felt cheap. It felt like like Star Trek just needed a a, a cheap knockoff instead of selling at its brand. It was Star Trek spelled T R A C K. Yeah. Didn't yeah, feel you know, one of the things that I, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. The way you said it, sort of that that character felt like he was in the kiddie pool. That's I think that's a great way to describe it. You know, he he doesn't he did not. And you couldn't see him going. That I forget the Klingon, whoever he was. He could never go up against Khan. He'd be wiped out. Or even Captain Christopher Lloyd's Claw, character in Star Trek Three. Like that guy was. He was a real foe. He was formidable. He was determined, and and he even said. I think, uh, right, they're on the planet, right, that's called the Genesis planet. It's breaking apart. He says, if we don't get out of here, we'll die. And he says, then we'll die. 
what, well, what do you do with that? <laughs> you know, a guy who's willing to die for what he believes in is someone who, um, you know, you don't want to mess with. This guy didn't really feel like that. He just kind of felt like you said, like in the kiddie pool. I know. I, I hear you. He, it was very Scientology for me. And Cybok, um was, he was, it was, it just, it felt like an L. Ron Hubbard book instead of a Star Trek book. Yeah. You know what was interesting though about Cyborg, um, at least for me, what I was, what I wanted was, you know, so we see him at the beginning, right? He, he's on the planet, and the and the one guy said, you know, no one's no one's gonna. Why are you raising? No one raises their gun for um, a bunch of holes in the ground. And the guy says, well, it's all I got. Okay, fair enough. Right. Cyborg walks up to him. He Cyborg w- walks up to him. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't make physical contact in any way. He just looks at him. And all of a sudden, the guy, he gets to his knees and he weeps, right? You know, he says, tell me, share with me your special pain. Now, let's play that thread out for a moment. Let's say that Cybok, for whatever reason, has some sort of mystical energy to him. He has some sort of, um, whether it's mystical, whether it's some mutation or it's some sciency, but whatever the reason is, whatever power he has, I'll accept it if you just explain it to me a little bit. Right. What I wanted was the moment where, you know, remember at the end of, uh, of Khan when uh, Scott uh, Bones is arguing with, with uh, Spock, you can't go in there, you'll die if you go in there. And Spock says, you know, I don't have time to argue with you. And he does the grip on him. But then he puts his fingers on his head and he says, remember, right? There's that tactile experience where he makes contact with bones and he does the thing. He's basically transferring his essence into bones. Now you believe that there was no such equivalent in Star Trek five where Cybok does something, whether it's Vulcan or not, where you see a physical contact or maybe a glow between the two of them, something where you say, Oh, I'm being brought into this sort of really cathartic moment. And every time that Cybok does that, he just stands in front of someone and says, share with me your pain. And they go, okay. And they start crying. And the next thing that you know, they're like, I'm follow you. I believe in your cause. Right. I needed a little bit more than that. It's a little bit more like, it's it's a little bit more psychic. And uh, this is something that doesn't necessarily, we don't really get that out of any of the Vulcan mythos that we know. Right, right, right. Vulcans aren't psychic. nor are they empathetic. Yeah, they yeah. they have a tactile connection in order to form to that cognitive link. Yeah. Except for Cyborg. Yeah. And and I want yeah. Yeah, I wanted something and some a little more backstory about why he rejected the more the logical side of him because he was obviously an emotional person. And if that's the case, then that's the case. But I just wanted a little bit more to understand where that came from. But then beyond that, even if you buy the premise that Cybok has this, whether it's psychic or whatever ability to sort of tap into your pain and let you release that. Now think about what happened with the other members of the Enterprise, right? It was Uhura and it was, um, I think it was, it was a Chekhov. All of a sudden, they, so they let go of their pain and then they say, okay, now that I've let go of my pain, whatever that was, I'm now going to reject my, my mission to Starfleet. I'm rejecting that completely, and I'm going to follow you wherever you go. 
I mean, I don't see how the two, I don't see the causal link between letting go of your pain and then rejecting your commitment to Starfleet. I don't see how the two are connected. Seems more like brainwashing is what it seems like. Right. And even if that's the case, I still need to feed. I need to understand. I need to understand the mechanics of how it works. And they just didn't do that. And, you know, so that was sort of, um, that was a missed opportunity. It just, you know, it could have been interesting, you know, because even in Star Trek two, you know, when they put the little creatures in the ear, you say, okay, well, I understand why you're being brainwashed. Well, it, you know, I don't need to have creatures, whether it's a psychic connection or not, but I need to understand as the audience, I wanted to understand through the process of you, you know, uh, allowing me to purge my pain, what does that do to me on an emotional, psychological, karmic level that allows me to sort of fall under your spell? I, need, I needed more. I needed something. Hmm. And um, we didn't really get it. Yeah. You know, while we're talking about Cybok, we had a, a listener who wrote, uh, this is from Joe Fiore, he said that this movie was vastly underrated, bad special effects, but so what? Star Trek has never been known about the effects the original series is archaic by today's standards, yet still amazing. Trek 5 delivered funny, character-based humor and some interesting ideas. Cybok, as a character, just makes sense. Of course there would be Vulcans who rejected logic. Why wouldn't there be? No species is ever one thing. We saw Klingons who weren't, warrior, Klingons who weren't warriors and a Ferengi that didn't have lobes for business. And now with Star Trek Discovery, Cybok adds another fascinating aspect to the Sarek family. The full-blooded Vulcan who rejected logic in favor of emotion. The adopted human who strives to be more Vulcan to please her adoptive father. And the half-human, half-Vulcan caught up in the middle two worlds. I sure hope Discovery mentioned Cybok this season because they'd be doing themselves a disservice to discuss Spock and Michael's childhood and leave out this fascinating sibling. So he found Cybok being kind of a fascinating character. Again, he doesn't really acknowledge the problems we're having with Cybok. But what are your thoughts about Cybok well, and his, this? Well, I think in a way he's. I agree. You know, just be, not every cling, not every, not every member of every race is the same thing. And I could absolutely buy if you tell me that Cybok rejected the more logical upbringing of the Klingons and took on an emotional path. I would accept that as an individual. For Cyborg, I would get that. I, I buy that, but he doesn't talk about it. We, I need a little bit of backstory to, to explain to me where he came from and why he was on this path. Or even if, even if it was from birth, even if they said, you know what, from the very beginning, I never took to the logical path. It didn't work for me. I always felt drawn or compelled to my more emotional side. I would accept it, but they just didn't give us anything. We had to sort of fill in gaps ourselves, and that's your job. I don't want. I don't want to. That's pre, it's pretty important, given the mythology of Vulcans. If you're going to be, if you're going to completely reject what a typical Vulcan is, at least explain to me how you came to be this kind of a Vulcan. Hmm. Yeah, uh, at least that was my that was my take on it. Yeah, uh, M. What are your thoughts about that? I. I just, I just didn't like it. It just was, it was cheap. And he was, and it, it, just like Russ is saying, we have to build up the mythos for him, for 
who this guy is and what his impetus is. And, and that's not the, I didn't get a check for that. I didn't get paid to figure that, that stuff out. (laughs) If you're going to, if you're going to put, if you're going to take, I'm trying to form the words in my head. Um, I've been up since four 30. Sorry. Um, If you're going to take a franchise and a history like Star Trek, and you're going to take a character as iconic and pivotal in this franchise, in this world, like Spock, and you're going to give him a half brother or a relative at all, there needs to be some information. You can't just throw that crap out there and hope it sticks. It, it's just, it feels lazy. It feels completely lazy. And the, I, I was completely uninterested in him. I, I don't think the acting was all that great. Uh, that could have led to it as well. I also didn't like that he, they called him Shakari, which was an homage to Sean Connery, who they were hoping would play that role. And I'm pretty sh- glad that Sean Connery didn't play that role. Um, I'm sure he could have made it better, but I'm sure he would have quit because there was just nothing there to play. Like it felt like there was, yeah, there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of there, there. There's just no substance. I will will say this though. And I'm not sure what your take on it was, but I remember seeing when it came out and not liking it, but you know, your memory fades. And sometimes you think you say, you know, maybe it wasn't as bad as I remember or as better than I remember. But one scene that stuck out for me then and it stuck out for me again when I watched it is a scene where we get to see McCoy with his dad. Absolutely. And seeing that real con- that conflict that he had where, you know, his dad is dying of this debilitating disease and his dad is saying, I'm in so much pain. Please, son, I know you're a doctor. Please ease my pain. I'm suffering. And McCoy is torn because he doesn't, I mean, how do I pull the plug on my dad? But he's, he's miserable. And then finally he does it. And then after he, pulls the plug and his dad dies, someone else discovers a cure for the very disease that he had. Now that is drama. I mean, that that's is. a really tense and powerful scene yeah. for me. And I thought, mm. wow. Yeah, and you, and, and then right, right off that we pivot and we start coming up against, you know, the big, um, you know, whatever it was that the energy field, you know, that's blocking the, the realm where, you know, supposedly God is for about 10 minutes or so. I was thinking, wow, you know, this movie, it it took a long time, but it's finally starting to click. Like, I can get into this. Unfortunately, that's kind of where the tension ended. But that one scene was, I think, the best of what the movie was. And had the entire movie held the energy and tension that that one scene had, you would have had a great movie. Yeah. No, and I totally agree with you about that scene. You know, so we're dealing with like medical assisted suicide. And this is before Dr. Kevorkian hit the scene and the news made big. So this is kind of pre that, that this movie came out. And, and it's, it is, and it's, it gives, it develops this backstory to McCoy that we hadn't heard. And it's just gold. Lee, Lee Kemp, Lee Kemp, our listener said, this little backstory of McCoy and his father was nothing but gold and new insight into his character. And I had other listeners that wrote and said that this was just one of their favorite moments of the movie. You get to see, you get Uh to see his pain. um, And not only the pain of helping his father die, but then learning like months later, they find a cure. 
I mean, well, what, I mean, what, a, what a torment. I mean, that, that was a, that was, it was, it was fascinating on, on a bunch of levels. And I found myself despite up to that point, not particularly enjoying the movie. And all of a sudden I, I was really sucked in. It was almost like, the, I can't remember where it shows up. It's about an hour into the movie thereabouts. And the previous hour really wasn't a whole lot to hold on to at that point. But all of a sudden, it's like the last hour didn't matter. It really drew me in. It's such a personal moment. And I think any one of us could probably relate to it. You know, any, all of us have at some point, like you have parents or, and, or kids. I mean, I've got two kids and, and you think about, you know, these, these, these tough moments. I mean, ironically, so I have a dog, he's 12, his name is Simon, and he's, he's struggling a bit. He's starting to wear down and he's got some um, seizure issues and some anxiety. And, you know, we're kind of getting to the point where we don't know how he's going to do. And we're feeling tension about how his final years are going to play out. And now I'm watching this movie and it's the same kind of thing. You're like, well, what do I do? What is absolutely the quote right thing? And the answer is maybe there is no right thing. You just have to make a decision and and hope that you're making the best decision possible for the, for the most virtuous of reasons, and then hope it works out. You, none of us ever really know. So that moment for me felt so universal. And I think that's why it tapped in so, so, um, so deeply for me. And I was really sucked in. I thought, whoa, that is really intense. Because we usually, well, usually up until that point, at least, you know, we don't always get such a deep personal moment with the characters. I mean, we know them, but that's, that's about as deep as I think we get is with anyone, um, in any of the movies or equally as powerful. And then unfortunately, you know, it kind of falls apart again after that. But I would argue that that one sequence is maybe one of the strongest in the whole franchise. No, but I, I, I totally agree. And I think this, this is one of those moments, like you said, this is, you put yourself into the shoes of McCoy. And you get it, and and M, as you said it, you 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 you, uh, you know, you kind of get this experience, um, on many levels, either with your kids, with your own parents, with pets. Um, there's something that really connects us to that moment with McCoy. I've had that experience, and it's the only it's the only redeeming scene in that whole film, because I have been in, I have been in McCoy's shoes, and. It is the only truly human, like real Star Trekky, Roddenberry moment in that whole film. You know, some people would argue yeah. that the, one of the other things that's a part of this film that makes it has some redeem is you see this triumvirate of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. You see their camaraderie at its best. Um, yeah, but they don't that, need to sit around a fire and sing "Row, row, row your boat." Well, but is life you a dream don't. i mean this is kind of a that that line does play out <laughs> through the film right um and uh i do like the row 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 your boat personally um and you do <laughs> yeah. get a, and you do get a lot of different moments with the three of them you do play playing out and so it is it is highlighting them as they don't have any family but they are themselves right the family and um you right. know they the book ending it the movie with those two scenes in Yosemite, yeah. it's beautiful and it's heartwarming and 
some people, some of our listeners have said well, that's the only redeeming part of the film. So, but uh, um, I mean, I could, it, it didn't do a whole lot for me. And it maybe it's just because if they had done the same scene and maybe there was a little bit less of it and the, and the narrative structure was tighter. But one moment though, that comes out of that. Um, although I don't think they handled it well. I mean, I'm sorry, but when Kirk was, I don't know how old he was supposed to be in the movie. I mean, in reality, Shatner was in his late fifties. I'm sorry, but you're not, cl- you're not climbing a Yosemite. Without I did, I, I did think about that. I thought about that. I'm like, uh, yeah, it's just, yeah. It, it's, but anyway, but even if we overlook that, right. But the one moment though, you know, like they're at the campfire and I think it was McCoy who said, like, what are you doing? I mean, don't you have, don't you understand the risk you put yourself in? And he said, nah, I was never, I never feared about it. And they said, what are you talking about? And he's, and the one moment that Kirk says, he says, I always knew that I would die alone. Now that one, it was, that moment only lasts for five or 10 seconds. Right. But it was sort of a pivotal, it was a critical moment that tells us that sort of we know at least his own mindset. Because of course, I mean, he could say, I know that I'll die alone. Well, you could quote unquote know it, but of course none of us really know. But he, maybe he carries that with him and it gives him a certain a mind view. No, I a agree. A worldview. Yeah. You know, unfo- yeah. Like, unfortunately, in what was it, Generations, um, the way they killed Kirk was, in my opinion, uh, an embarrassment. Because he, he, mm. he needed to go out in a, in a blaze of glory, not the way he went. But the fact that Kirk himself sort of, you know, ultimately, ironically, he was kind of a loner in his own way, right? I, I always knew I would die alone because he didn't have, he didn't have a traditional family in that sense. Or that's what he believed, right? He felt that ultimately he was just going to have to go and, to go to go his own way in his final moments. I mean, I guess we all die alone technically, but you know, as if he would be by himself. And I guess that's kind of what happened. I would have handled it in a different way, but I thought it was an interesting that one that one little scene had some. I thought it had some. It had a little bit of power to it. Yeah. When it's echoed then later on when they rescue uh, Kirk from the God Planet, whatever they call it, um, and you know, yeah. Spock's at the gunner. He says. And he said, I thought I was dead. He goes, oh, I knew you weren't because you weren't alone. You know, they echo that back and forth. Yeah. So that was kind of a neat little interplay throughout it. So uh, other other things that people did highlight in the movie, they said this is one of the best Star Trek, one of the best scores of any Star Trek film. That the music mm, itself is, I'll give it that, yeah. Is one of the best. So um, I, I have to admit, I don't... The music didn't stand out for me huge one way or another. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it was the best. I, I, look, that's, best is always sort of a matter of opinion. It is. Um, I it find is. it very, I mean, I would, I would find it difficult for any of the music. My favorite music in the franchise, at least I remember, was that really great music when they were in the, what, in the Mutari Nebula. I mean, that was, to me, that, that music was had so much power and so much tension to it. Um, for me, anyway, no, nothing that I recall surpasses that moment. Um, but the music in this movie, I don't remember kind of sticking out for me one way or another. Yeah. It, it holds its own. Um, I don't think that... Fair enough. It holds its own. I don't, 
I think that that was a one time, a one time shot too with that particular. Um, uh, oh God, what's his name? Um, the composer. I, I had it on my. Uh, I had it on the tip of my tongue. And it's gone. Um, I think that was his one time with um, with Star Trek. Again, I'm obsessed with the new Star Trek. Uh, Michael, can't think of his name either. This is a great night. Um, <laughs> but for for what I recall, and I like to listen to Star Trek soundtracks while I'm at work because it makes me feel like huh. with the way my monitors are set up, it, it makes me feel <laughs> like I'm on the on the bridge. So <laughs> it does feel epic when I get work done. And I do recall yeah, that yeah. being one of the ones in the rotation with the newer ones, nice. with the the last three films. Um, I keep that one playing. Yeah. So it's not it the worst sort of movie yeah. in total. Uh, music just yeah. give it a little bit. Yeah. I don't know what you guys thought, but it was sort of an interesting moment, you know, so when they're on the, the God planet, whatever it is, and he says, you know, I need your starship. And they say, well, hold on a second. You know, what does God need with a starship? <laughs> Great line. Okay. Great line. You got it. Yeah. Right. Right. You got it. Like, okay, you got me. All right. Here's a great moment of tension. Now, whatever the, the villain, whoever he was, I mean, maybe I missed it, but did they ever, I don't remember them even explaining who he was and how he got there. Did I, did I just overlook it? No, no, no. That was, I, I found that problematic too, because I felt like, Okay, we established this person is not God. All right. Well, then who is he? Who right. is he? He's just so all, all we know is that he's not God, and that's not quite enough. We feel like we need a little bit more about no. this villain. And why is he trapped then behind this great barrier? Right. Because that's obviously right. It's not to keep ships out, it's to keep this God in. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, or whatever, whoever he is. So, so and here's the thing. So there could be, you know, and maybe they were, they intended to have this very, you know, deep and complex backstory behind who that character was. I would have wanted to know that because right. it could have been really fascinating, right? I mean, if he's got enough power or something where he can sort of project himself to appear as if he is God and enough to sort of create a mythology and rumors throughout the galaxy that that's where God is. Whoa. I mean, you gotta be pretty, you gotta be pretty badass right. to have that kind of influence over what people think. So you got me there. Just tell me the rest. Right. Right. No, I hear you. I hear you. And that was, that was a little bit of an issue for me. Um, I want to go back to the music because I made a mistake. Okay, go um, okay. I, I was thinking of so Cliff Edelman was the one one the one trick pony for Star Trek, the movies. He did Undiscovered Country. Cherry Goldsmith, in fact, did Motion Picture Five, and then he did um, Final Frontier, and then he did First Contact, Insurrection, and Nemesis. I don't know how I messed that up, so I'd like to put out a public disclaimer that I was incorrect with that information. Oh, My apologies, <laughs> Mr. Goldsmith. All right. Sorry. Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> Very good. Um, you know, just a couple other points. We do need to begin to wrap this up. Um, but I also like the part where they're where, you know, Cybox saying, give me your pain. And Kirk says, no, I need my pain. It makes me okay, who I yeah. am. That was that was also that happens right after that McCoy moment. And 
where he's yep. with his father. And I thought that that, that line was, was a really good line. You know, that the pain and yes, all, all yes. our mistakes and all the screw ups we had in our life, they make us who we are. And without it's the them, scar tissue that yeah, reminds us, right? It makes us with without them. We was we. we I've heard one psychologist say, you know, it wouldn't be a life if we didn't have these things that kind of help define and flesh us out. Well, what is the what does the Buddha say? You know, life is suffering. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think Kirk seems to understand even, that. Yeah, and beyond and beyond that, he's seen that from his own crew. If he gives himself up, if he uh, turns himself over sort of emotionally to Cybok, he's going to fall under, he may very well fall under his spell. Right, right, absolutely. Right. One other thing that was kind of interesting, I don't know, I don't recall it ever being hinted anywhere else in Star Trek, unless I just have a very poor memory and I haven't watched everything Star Trek also. Um, this whole hint of the Scotty Ahura relationship. Oh yeah, that was weird. That was weird. Uh, wh- where did that come from? You don't see it anywhere else, right? Not that I, re- I mean, not that I recall. Um, maybe, maybe it popped up somewhere during the series. I don't necessarily in fan remember. fiction. I fan remember. fiction. I made, but it was weird, and it was not <laughs> just that they had this. I don't know whether it was an actual love affair or not, but they were very touchy feely, right? She was right. Uhura was you know rub, rubbing her hands on his cheeks. It was very intimate and it, it just I mean if that's the direction that you're going, hey, fair enough. You know, they've worked together on a starship and been through hell and back for thirty years. I could totally buy that happening. But you know, if that's the case, that's like give me something. Let me know a little bit more about what's going on here. No, I totally so there- she was always kind of flirty. She there was there's definitely a bond between the two of them. I don't know if they're, you know, friends with benefits, if perhaps something <laughs> they they yeah. shacked up one evening and you know, they they <laughs> what's the pleasure planet <laughs> that they talk about in next gen? If they who the knows? Rylock? Um there is there actually is a whole lot of chatter about it on the internet. A lot of it draws from fan fiction, but there's it. The impetus comes from um, just a couple of like subtle hints from from uh, the original series, which it's been probably 25 years since I've watched. So that's something when I go to rewatch it this over the winter, um, it's something I'm going to keep. I'm going to keep an eye on. Yeah, Uh for sure. Although I much prefer uh, Uhura and Spock for now. Oh, there you I go. like that better. Oh, in the oh, in the uh, in the newer movie in Kelvin, yeah, in the, yeah. in the Kelvin timeline, yeah. yeah. Or there's a whore's yeah. dance, her siren dance. Oh, that's is that's in the TV show, isn't it? No, that's in this movie. Oh, the fan dance thing. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that yeah, that was yeah. That was a bit weird too for me, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, there there was a lot of weird, unexplained. There was a lot of stuff that was weird and unexplained, and kind of felt very thrown together, uh, plot wise. It was, you know, really there was, at least for me anyway, a lot. A lot of the movie was just sort of forgettable, which was unfortunate because I really wanted to dig it. So, M, does this go down as being one of the the worst movie in the franchise for you? It's not my favorite. 
<laughs> so that's it all is, you're going to say. It is. I wouldn't say it's the worst. I don't want to. I don't want. Yeah, it's the worst. Okay. There you go. Russ, I'm just going to spit uh, it out. Russ, of the of the films that are currently out, including the Kelvin universe, it, if I were to rank them in in order of preference, it would be at the bottom. Okay. All right. But who knows what? The yeah, mine would be. I, I'm not sure if that would be last for me or not, but it would be. If it's not, it's close. Right. Right. You know, it's one that I as I watched it. It definitely, I said, okay, I'm watching this. I'm doing a podcast on it. I have to do it. Um, but my daughter, who thoroughly enjoyed Star Trek Four, and said, hey, I'll watch it with you, uh, five minutes yep. in was on her phone. She was like, this is for the birds. I'm not finishing <laughs> this. She just enjoyed the comedy of Star Trek Four, and it was just mm. lacking. It was just lacking in this movie. So she was just totally not into it. So definitely not yep. one for me. So one quick thing. Thank you, universe. And thank you, Internet. Apparently, there's a novelization of Final Frontier. And there's a little bit about how Scotty and Uhura are talking about how Uhura was going. Um, she I'm reading through it really, really fast. She had planned her first trip to Scotland for this shore leave and had mentioned it to Scott, but upon learning that she had signed up for a package tour, the engineer had been outraged. He would, uh, he would take her himself. He insisted and show her the lovelier sights that, uh, than the tourists would ever see there. Oh, wow. There would be no paying for hotels. She would stay with his sister's family. And, and with that, it would be no imposition at all. Um, so maybe there was a spark of something. Right. And Could be. I last, he said with a genuine warmth, <laughs> you're the most understanding woman I know. Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. Well, you know, I did, I did wonder, we were talking about some holes in the story and I did wonder if the novelization <laughs> filled that in. Like it does sometimes. It for a does. Movie. And um, maybe we're just missing that, but. Well, uh, Russ, I just want to thank you so much for coming onto the podcast with yes, us to talk yes. talk about this movie, but also to talk about your work and uh, your work as an author and what you've coming out. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could direct uh, our listeners, uh, where can people find you know, the stuff that you're writing and uh, where can they buy your books? Where can they find out more about you? Sure. Um, well, all my books are up on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, so that's real easy. Um, you can find all my stuff through the Crazy Eight Press website, which is just Crazy Eight, the number eight press dot com, and uh, you can come to my website, which is russcolchamiro.com. So that's Russ R U S S C O L C H A M, like Michael I R O dot com. And then you can follow me on uh, Instagram and Twitter, which is author dude Russ, or they can find me on my uh, Facebook author page. Awesome. Well, thank you again for sitting out and chatting with us. Em, do you have any final? Uh, no problem. So, well, I've been looking for something to dive into. I've got a, a bunch of travel coming up and I just ordered a couple things off of Amazon. Excellent. Awesome. That you wrote, not just in general. <laughs> yeah. Like I ordered <laughs> like toothpaste and stuff, but right. I also bought you books. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I have to, I can't tell you, it, it heartens me to know that I rank right up there with toothpaste. Well, yeah, hey, you know. <laughs> your teeth are the best food you're ever going to have, so you need to take care of them. Oh, you don't, 
You don't got to tell me twice. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, Russ, well, thanks thank again. You thanks, so much, Russ. thanks for joining us. We really appreciate no, it. No, thank, thank you guys. I had a great time. Welcome back to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. Hope you f- hopefully you enjoyed our discussion of Star Trek Five. Obviously, not our favorite Star Trek movie, but some great <laughs> some great discussion about it. Regardless, it, it was good that Russ was here because he had he did point out some of the the more salient, important, absolutely um, weighted points of the movie that kind of stuck with, and it did made me remember a couple of things. Um, about the film and uh, you know it was it was troubled to begin with before with all the the budget cuts and 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 just the, as they were filming they were getting budget cuts so it just it was a good idea but just a poor execution yeah no definitely well because uh we did not like these Star Trek, maybe quite as much as others. We're going to talk about Star Wars. Star Wars! Show, Star Wars. Um, so, Am, I understand that for our Sci-Fi 5 and 5, we're going to talk about news that we found out about Star Wars 9, right? Right. So right. tell me you got about really, it. By the way, you got really like Jazz 105 there. Em, uh, <laughs> I understand... <laughs> You, we've heard a little bit about Star Wars. It was really cute. I've missed that. You haven't done that in a long time. Right, well, here, here we're at. Um, so, yeah, we had some Star Wars news come out, and there are five things. This is my um, Sci-Fi 5 and 5, Star Wars 5. Uh, I will make the comment, and we shall discuss. How's that? Go ahead. Sounds great. Okay. Yay, uh, Mark Hamill! Mark Hamill is in this film. Confirmed. He's in. Of course he's in. He's a Jedi. He will always be there. <sighs> Absolutely. You can't have this film without Luke Skywalker in. Yes, we saw him die, but come on. He's a Obi- Jedi. Obi-Wan Kenobi was in all the movies, too, and he's been, he was dead. So, I mean, come on. Absolutely. We need he Mark Hamill. He will transcend. Yes, absolutely. Indeed. And we have a release date. Go ahead. December 20th of 2019. Um, and no, I have not talked to a movie theater about renting out a theater yet. But you're thinking about it. You are thinking about it. I am, but it's, that's, that's a Friday. And then the next, you know, Christmas is right around the corner. Like last year I rented out a theater and it was the week before Christmas. So people were still in town and we rented out a bunch of theaters so we could all go. Um, and so I'm a little like, ah, I want to do this for the, but at least we have the date, and I'm just gonna I'm I'm gonna buy a chunk of tickets so a group of friends can go before we all leave for the holidays. Yeah, I think it's awesome, and it's also great that we aren't getting any other. It's not this Christmas, but it's next Christmas it gives us some breathing time after what happened with Solo, and so I like that yeah. we have a release date that's a year and a half away. It gives them time to really like to work on it because, um, funny enough, point number three. Right. There's a little info about. Um, about you know why it's good that they're taking a little longer. Um, so n- n- the n- my number three joyful thing about this is that Carrie Fisher will be in it. Um, that they are going to use a whole lot of footage that they had from the previous movie, and they'll do whatever magic they do. Hopefully, incredibly respectfully, um, to have her in there. And apparently, and I love this. It makes me so sad. But apparently, at the end of the shooting of Last Jedi. Carrie told Disney and the director, look, Han Solo got his movie. 
Mark G, um, Mark Hamill got his movie. This next one had better all be about me. <laughs> so she was complaining that like seven was about Harrison, eight was about Mark, and that she was that the ninth movie should be about Princess Leia. And that was absolutely the path they were going on. And then she passed away. So they 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 went back literally back to the drawing board to kind of kind of cluster together what footage they had of her kind of revisit the storyline and make sure it makes sense and and make sure that they're not just cobbling together a ninth film to make it happen they they're doing it in a very i feel like they've got the right nerds doing this right uh, clearly because jedi was great and and it was I, I, I think we're in good hands. I don't feel right. nervous about it. It's sad, but I don't feel nervous. And, you know, at least they aren't going the route where they're uh, digitally putting in Tarkin, right? They aren't, we we're talking about a digital recreation. You're using existing found footage that they do have. Right. Um, so it's going to be her. So her daughter played Leia in Rogue One. Because she has the same facial structure as her mother. And then her daughter is actually in this new series of Jet of Return of Star Wars, which is kind of cool. So if they needed if they needed to like recreate something, um, like that they have the audio but not the video, they they would have her daughter there as kind of um a stand-in. Because I I like what they did with Tarkin. I thought it was really well done. It was weird and creepy because his eyes didn't move right. <laughs> right, right. It was still pretty good. Right. No, I, I totally agree. Totally agree. Oh, number, so the two. number two. Number two is a rumor. It's just a rumor, which means, of course, I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, apparently, apparently, Ewan McGregor has been seen around the, product, the pre-production office. Well, is Winnie the Pooh with him? Because that's all I care about. Oh, boy. <laughs> but Yes. But yes, but, uh, come they're on. crossing bring, streams. Bring in, bring in Obi Wan Kenobi. Why not? I mean, come on! How great would that be? That would. Be- Although I'm mad at you and McGregor because he's apparently left his wife Ev for some young, beautiful young lady, and that upsets me because I have a lot of respect for his wife. So he'd better like get his poop together, Who's Mr. McGregor. Um, but exciting! How cool would that be to to have? To have Obi-Wan come back and have a little chit chat and hopefully a joke like you've not aged well or something like that <laughs> or some comment like how come I didn't come back young and handsome. Right. Right. <laughs> that would be really cool. Oh, it would be. It would be good. And, and, and your biggest one, though, your number one. Number one. Number one thing I am jazzed about. Three words. For Star Wars. Three words. Nine. It rhymes with silly me Gilliams. Silly <laughs> me Gilliams. Ah, oh, yes. Yeah. Satisfaction. These like he's the coolest, jivest, badassest. Sorry, you're gonna have to bleep that out. He's just the he's it's Billy friggin' D. Williams. I know. I know. Come on, Lando, Lando Yeah. Just. It it closes the book. It finishes it for me. It it makes the series. It makes the franchise 
close these particular books so that new books can be written, so that new new worlds can be written about in this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I, I'm stoked about this. And I, you know, when he, when he signed on, I was like, yes, Lando back. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with the story with Lando. And yeah. where has Lando been hiding in the last two movies? That'll be interesting to find out, too. Well, I'm curious, because, like, so Lando ended up, you know, from a scoundrel to a good guy. Um, I'm sure he was off running some mining colonies or, like, doing things behind the scenes the way he does. But, it, you know, with the loss of Han and the loss of Luke, and they are limited to this ragtag fleet, and they just, and it's not even a fleet yet, it's just... The Millennium Falcon. Right. Um, and a bunch of. And that, and the message got out. So they're hoping somebody hears them. Who better to show up on the door? Like, can I get my ship back now? Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, it would, it'll just be, I'm very curious what other people think, but I, I love, I love that he's coming back to the story. Yeah. No, I'm with you. It'll be interesting to see how they write that in. And, uh, we will definitely keep you guys, everyone listening, in the loop as we find out more about Star Wars. So, Yay! Yeah. Well, Em, it's been fantastic just chatting with you, and we've missed Miles. Miles, been, we miss you. We do, but it's been great chatting with you, Em, and, uh, and Russ, and bringing him in. I had a great conversation tonight with everyone. I, I had a blast. It's always fun to chat with you. I know we pick on each other a lot. <laughs> and uh, all in good fun, though. I know you're like my brother. <laughs> you're my brother from another mother, which is why I think we like pick on each other yes. so much. Yeah, it was really fun. And tonight with Russ, God, that dude had so much information. We'll have to. That have was him. really great. We we got to have him back on again sometime. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I believe that's about it. So I guess uh, we're gonna wrap up the show here. Uh, we would love to hear your thoughts if you haven't shared them already on Star Trek Five. Um, yes. In the future, we will be doing Star Trek Six. I forget the name of that movie. Do you remember? Uh, uh, um, I don't. Um, the uh, is it Undiscovered Country? It might be. That sounds good. But we'll be doing That's Star Trek good. Six. We don't know. Yeah, we'll be. The internet will tell us all, and uh, we will certainly enjoy talking about that movie as well. I think the plan is we're talking about having the Frasers on. Is that correct? They just don't know it yet. I uh, we're we're still discussing that because there was the idea of everybody sign up for their own. Trek show that they movie that they want to talk about. Right. Um, I think that was the one that Heather was 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 down for. So okay. I'd love to have um Fraser and Heather on the on on the here at the diner. Yes. It'd be swell. Yes. Swell. Really, Em? Swell? <laughs> you you say stoked like it's still nineteen eighty seven, dude. It is. It is nineteen eighty seven. Don't push it. <laughs> No. All right. Well, hey, we we really have really we're really grateful that everyone has stayed with us and that we that you listen to the show and that you stayed. And, and um, thank you so much. Thank you so much. We're honored. And I believe that's about it. We're going to wrap up the show here. Um, thank you so much for listening. And uh, I believe that's about it. And uh, as Miles, Miles, say, why don't you take us out of the show, ladies and gentlemen? Good night and good luck. We'll see ya. To your dailies. Space Aww, I miss Miles. If you've enjoyed the conversation, the owners of this establishment would love to hear from you. Send your comments and feedback to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast at gmail.com or join our Facebook page at facebook.com slash sci-fi diner.
head. Oh, did you see that? Long story. I was um, so today. I've been painting. We have a barn, right? Farm, and I was painting the barn and getting ready to paint a new section. I was ripping off spouting that they need, and I put a tether around this one piece of spouting and was yanking on it. It was rusty. The spouting split, and one piece came loose and jammed me straight on. Right ah! <laughs> yeah, fifteen stitches later. So you know, I walk in the house. Chris is gone. My wife's gone. My daughter's here. I walk in. I squeeze my daughter. Right running down my hands. This is awful. So, but here I am, and I, I got a head wound in it. It's a little bit pulsating tonight. Oh, so, gross! Faint, I'm so sorry, no, dude. That sucks. It does. But you know what? Okay, I'm sorry. I just looked up and saw the big bandage and thought, ah, what happened? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, if I'm a little bit loopy, that, that might explain. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's get rolling.